this morning through, we trust, the month of August on the life of David. And although his name does not appear in this text, we hopefully will see the significance of that and uh, begin to set the groundwork for his life. As you're turning, let me just say, too, that David is the... Um, we have more information on the life of David than any other, not only any other figure in the Bible, but really any other single person in the days before Christ. He is, uh, his life is extremely well documented and uh, described in a good bit of detail. But before we get to him, we read these words in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Uh, about his birth, about the birth of Samuel. So, um, let's begin with verse 1, and just to get the full background. I was going to start in verse 4, but we'll start in verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? What are you, why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. 
She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. And then chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, a song which she sang on this occasion, or shortly thereafter. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like you, Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly. Or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for the food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has led, had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sets them with princes, seats them with princes, and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundation of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is God's word. Let us pray. Teach us, O Lord, from your word. Fill us, O Spirit, with your power. Open our understanding that these things might be applied, we pray. And as we come to your table, Lord, remind us of our great debt to the one who came uninvited and suffered rejection and rose again. We gather in his name this day and we pray that prayer which he taught us, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. <coughs> well, rather unceremoniously, the life of Samuel, the life of David begins in obscurity without any introduction or anything all of a sudden, we're told of this man from Elkanah, and no background really, except that this is coming out of the time of the judges. Samuel, who is mentioned here as being born, is the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. He's sort of a hinge between two major sections, not only of the Bible, but also of the history of Israel. And today, we're going to learn about his birth. He's a very important figure, but he doesn't come from a very important family. He doesn't have a wonderful pedigree or background. His father doesn't appear to be prominent in any way. He's not wealthy. He's not well-known. He's not in a place or position of authority. It's just a man of the tribe of Ephraim named Elkanah who has two wives. 
It begins, though, with a woman facing an impossible birth. What happens here is miraculous and wonderful. I guess the first mistake was that Elkanah took two wives. Let's not pass too quickly over that. One man, one woman, the Bible says. And these difficulties, to some extent, can be traced to that. Had he only had one wife, one or the other, things would have been much simpler. But the focus of the story is not on Penina the Blessed, but on Hannah the Barren, the one without any children. She was one of two wives, but she was the only one who was not able to conceive a child. And just as in the instance of Sarah, it was clear whose fault it was, who was the barren one. Abraham had a child by Hagar. Elkanah had a child by Penina. So to that point in time, both Sarah and Hannah were barren, and the presumption of the guilt, if it's to be assigned, the presumption of the blame, if it's to be assigned, is not on the husband in these instances. And it's difficult for us, even though um, fertility issues are are very prominent today and, and very important, it's difficult for us to overestimate the um, impact of this. Just culturally, they were defended by armies. Armies were made up of men. Therefore, men, boy babies, males, were more highly valued. It wasn't just a matter of gender preference or some kind of... uh, Bias. It was a matter of life and death for the nation. And so it was the, the hope and, and desire. Thank you. <laughs> it's a month ago that you did this. It was the hope and desire of the, of the nation that they would have enough sons to fill the army. And if you didn't produce sons, suddenly maybe openly, you were a drag on the society. You are like the unemployed. We're all having to pull your weight. We're all having to, to make up for what you didn't do. And so in, in that sense, Hannah was doubly forsaken. Not only personally a sense of loss and a desire for a child, but culturally questionable. Add to this Penina's meanness, irritating her, provoking her, causing her to fall sh- to, to feel even worse. Verse 6 we read, uh, as we come, come to verse 6, but, uh, and because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival, Penina, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Now this word irritation, verse 6, is the only place where that word is applied in the Hebrew to the interior of a person's life. The other times it appears in the Old Testament, it refers to something like a roaring storm. So this wasn't a passing depression or sadness. This was an explosion on the inside. 
Every time she saw Penina, or at least very often, and you notice later in the passage, especially when they went up to worship, she felt the inadequacy and the loneliness of her situation. She experienced an inner roaring agony. As I said, bearing children was a life or death issues for families and nations then. Women who bore lots of children were heroes. Women who could not bear children were useless to family and nation, particularly the men, because it was the men who did most of the productive labor in terms of financial support, and it was the men who served in the army. Hannah's life was hopeless since she did not have children. That one fact, I mean, she may have had... She may have been more beautiful than Penina. She may have been younger. She may have been stronger, in better health. She may have had a better family that she came from and had been maybe more well-bred and born and, and have all the advantages of life. But the one fact that she did not bear a child, particularly a son, overshadowed everything. And it defined her as a person. She could not escape it culturally, she couldn't escape it within the home, and she couldn't escape it within her heart. She was dying inside. And it was an explosive thing. She hadn't just accepted it, in other words, and moved on. Application Is your meaning and worth dependent on your individual attributes and achievements? Hannah's certainly was, or the lack thereof. Hannah had defined, was defined by her culture and her family, but she also defined herself as a failure because she didn't have a child. The one fact overshadowed all others. That can happen to us. We can want something so badly and work so much for it, and desire it so ardently that life can't, is unbearable, unthinkable without it. We don't want to admit it. We certainly don't want to embarrass ourselves with it, but they are there. What is it that you must have, or you are nothing in your eyes? What is it that's essential to your self-definition of who you are? Are you under the power of what our culture asks of you? You say, I don't fit in. That's what Hannah said. I don't fit in. I'm not appreciated. You may feel the same way. But if so, you're under the power of what other people say about you, even more than yourself. You're captive to the cultural constructs and expectations of others. She was in pain. But she also had some hope, as we come to see. Now, Elkanah tries to help the situation. And by the way, one of the things she may have resorted to is, is drink. You know, Eli thinks that she might have been drinking. And uh, it could be that she had a little reputation there. It's a little bit debated. It's not, I, I wouldn't say if she was here that she was known as a drunkard. But Eli suspects it of her. And it could be that one of the ways she handled this was through drink. Elkanah loves her. Her husband cares for her. And he tries to help her. Verse 8, Hannah, why are you weeping? 
Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now this is wonderful. Elkanah is being as attentive and kind as he can. He's not copying the cultural rejection of his wife. In fact, he's going out of his way to draw her in and to compensate for her loss or her sense of unworthiness. This is, this is marvelous. This is what a husband should do. And he comes to her and, and uh, he, he sees that she has, as I say, lost the cultural game. She has no children, but he loved her and he offers her an alternative happiness system. Verse 5, to Hena he gave a double portion of the meat because he loved her. And so he's saying, all right, a, ch- a child is out of the question. That's not in, it for, in the God's plans for you, but I love you. In fact, I will declare openly before other people that I love you more than Penina. Before anybody who looks, I will give you a double portion of the meat and I will come to you. And I will confess and profess my love for you. Won't that be enough? Won't that be enough to make you happy? I can't do anything about the childlessness, but I will try to make it up to you. This poisoned Penina and made things worse at home. He was saying, build your hope on the fact that I love you more than her. And to her credit, Hannah discovers another way. There's the disappointment of not having a child. And there's the inadequacy of her husband's love. But beginning in verse 9, she begins to take decisive action. Here is, this is a, almost a Hebrew idiom where it says Hannah stood up. She, she stood up, this was, this was to make an announcement, to, to declare something. She was going to take her stand once they were eating and drinking in Shiloh. How long this had gone on, we're not told. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple, and in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. She's decided she's going to resolve this issue through prayer. She's going to take a step to the Lord. And there she finds peace. As we've said before, prayer is communicating with God and it needs to be real. It needs to be honest. And there is no more honest prayer than Hannah's here. Verse 11, she made a vow saying, O Lord, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to you and to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. She poured out her life to the Lord. She told him everything. Now, you might wonder about that because God already knows everything. Why, why is that important? I don't know. 
But I know that over and over again in the Bible, people do it to great effect. Why do I need to tell him when he already knows that I'm dying inside? Because that's what people do when they pray. They, they, they speak the obvious to the Lord. And sometimes there's a bit of resentment which says, I'm not even going to bring this up. There becomes something of a barrier when you won't talk about with your Heavenly Father the thing that's most on your heart. And Hannah doesn't do that. She comes to it. Eli notices it and talks to her about it. It was unusual then and it's unusual now. She was praying out her feelings. She was pouring out her heart before the Lord. She was telling him what she wanted and what she would do if she got it. And she told him no doubt about her pain and her sense of loss. Notice, too, in verse 11, she is following the Lord's prayer pattern. O Lord Almighty. She begins with Him. She doesn't begin by saying, I need a son. She begins by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. O Lord Almighty, I call upon you. Elkanah wants to help me. He can't help me. I want to help myself. I can't help myself. Will you help me, Lord? Remember me, the broken-hearted one, the life of a little obscure woman. It matters to him. It does. He is both transcendent and merciful at the same time. He is both infinite and personal. He's both the creator of all things, majestic and powerful, beyond our understanding, and personally condescending and interested. She promises no razor on his head if she gets this son. She wasn't just promising, as I say in the outline, to give Samuel to God, which was the Nazarite pattern. He would have to live in the tabernacle. She would not be able to raise him. So she is saying, before I asked for a child for me, but now I say, give me a child for you. Marvelous transition here. I built the whole first half of my life on wanting a child for me. But now the insight of prayer and, and the work of the Holy Spirit has opened my eyes to see, I want a child for you. And so if you give me one, I, I won't get any benefit from it. I'll give him back to you. I won't get to hold him like I want to hold him. I won't get to raise him like I want to raise him. I won't get to marry him off like I want to marry him off. You take him, and you take him from the beginning, and you raise him, and he does. Hannah is as good as her word. Samuel is raised with Eli and Hophni and Phinehas in the temple of the Lord. This is a key transition. Hannah is saying that she wants a child, but has altered profoundly why she wants that child. She's saying, you are my hope and passion, and I want to participate in your plans for the world. Now it is safe, O oh Lord, to give me a son, because now I know how to raise him. I know how to raise him by giving him to you. This is extremely helpful. Essentially what Hannah has been looking for is significance. 
She wants significance. Significance of raising a child, of bearing a child, of being in a culture where that sort of thing is valued. She wants significance, and she's been trying to get it from culturally accepted norms. Children, childbearing, or from her husband's love. But now she sees, as I say in the application, from the outside happiness systems that were imposed on her, both cultural and personal. So Samuel was born as much through her faith as through her body because she had learned that her significance and our significance can be weighed primarily in light to the Lord. So she sings. Second Samuel chapter, First uh, Samuel chapter two. I read it to you, and scholars ever, ever since that day in the New Testament have have noted the close parallelism between this and Mary's song, another obscure woman, not barren, but uh, with a birth under clouded circumstances. If you read. Luke's gospel and the, and the song of Mary and if you read Hannah's song you'll see tremendous parallel Mary is in some ways the ultimate Hannah who bore the ultimate David Jesus so what are the applications first of all God's power begins to work in your life at the point of your total inability Conversion doesn't occur until we come to the end of ourselves and say, I'm sorry. I need help. And in the same way throughout our lives, answers don't seem to come so readily. Of course, the Lord is good to us. He gives us more than we even ask for. And sometimes, you know, as Paul writes, exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. But in many cases, God's power begins to work in our lives at the point of our total inability. When we begin to see that, we can't save ourselves, and that we can't make good of our lives apart from his help, then we begin to flourish. But this first key step must be made, and and Hannah comes to it. She comes to it, and she says, if I'm going to have a child, Elkanah can't help me. No one can help me except one, and that's the Lord, and I'm going to go to him. And that's the beginning of the healing. He sends salvation through barren women. Samson's mother, Isaac's mother, had no children. Samuel's mother had no children. He's making a wider point to all of us, not just to Hannah. There is no salvation apart from me. There is no new uh, judge prophet called Samuel. There is no great leader of God's people and prophet of God's word unless I give it to him. Elkanah had nothing to do with it. That's the point. Inescapable. Hannah sees that she has total inability and God makes the point that his salvation will be through a desert where there is no life, barrenness. His power begins to work at the moment of our greatest weakness, as at the new birth when we see our barrenness and our failure and we deserve, that we deserve nothing from him. At that point, the power of God comes in. It comes in at the time of repentance. Do with, what, with your need what Hannah did with hers. 
She said, I will obey you more than ever before. I was obeying you before I was faithful in my attendance at worship and I loved you, but now I'm going to flip it. Instead of wanting a child for me, I want a child for you. And I'm going to find my significance in that child, not in its relation to me, but in its relation to you. Do you see that? It's a magnificent transformation in her thinking and in her praying and in her life. I wanted a child for me. I didn't get one. I see that was wrong. I want a child now and I'll give him to you. And she did. Now, we all bargain with God from time to time. Very few of us keep those bargains. She kept her bargain. And she sincerely meant it. And God used it. Just the right time. In just the right way. Second bullet. God will always use your suffering. But don't expect even within your lifetime to know how. If Hannah had not suffered, she never would have given Samuel to him so that God would use him in the sending of the Messiah. Your suffering is not meaningless, but don't think that you can grasp its meaning in your lifetime. Israel had not had a king until this point in time. But in her song in verse 10, she says, He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his exalted, his anointed. Hannah didn't live to see Samuel anoint Saul. And almost probably and almost certainly didn't live to see Samuel anoint David. But her suffering bore fruit far beyond her life. We want to know why, Lord. Why do I have a toothache? Why won't my checkbook balance? Why are they mean to me? Why can't I get a better grade in geography, etc., etc.? We want to know why. Why are we suffering? And, and Hannah would say, were she here, eventually it will bear fruit. I, don't, I didn't know at that time that this was going to lead to the first David. I had no idea. And I didn't live long enough, probably, to see it. So God will always use your suffering, but don't expect that even within your lifetime you will always know how or why. Thirdly, notice that God loves the people that the world thinks are losers. What are you doing about the poor, the barren, the weak, the failures? Has the gospel permeated your life far enough not to be mean to the Hannahs around you? You go to school with some. They can't keep up. So do you push them? Laugh at them? Mock them? They don't have the things that are valued in your school. Do you treat them like Penina treated Hannah? No. Penina did not get the gospel. Hannah did. And remember that God uses the weak. And somebody that you're nice to now may end up being the mother of kings. Fourth bullet. Most of our deepest disappointments in life come because we look for certain things from people and things that we can only get from God. God wants to be your significance and your worth. 
See what he did through giving up his son. He gave us significance. Our, any significance that you and I have, any true cosmic significance that we have, is a derived significance. We don't earn it. We don't purchase it. We don't merit it in any way. If our life is, has any significance at all, if we are to count for anything in this world, it's a derived significance through our connection to Him. The gifts that you have with which you make your living are derived from Him. The people that mean so much to you in your lives have been given to you by Him. And your understanding of the gospel and your understanding of what Christ did for us at the cross is a derived significance from Him. Hannah saw that. The culture said, we'll give you significance. All you have to do is have a son and, and you're in. She couldn't do it. Her husband said, I'll give you significance. I'm going to publicly display that I love you more than any, anyone else, including your rival. And I'm going to give you a double portion and I'm going to publicly profess my affection for you above all others. That didn't give her significance. She ached. But she found significance when she flipped her problem. When she said, I wanted this for me, now I want it for you. Very significant. And at the beginning of the coming of, of David into the world, we cannot miss this point. That our significance is derived from the second David. This is just a story probably repeated many times in the history of the world. Why is it in the Bible? To teach us that our significance is derived. It's not intrinsic to us. It's not something we get from the culture. It's not something we get from what other people say about us. It's derived from Him. And so in that respect, borrowing from Woody Allen the title of the sermon, Hannah and her sisters and brothers. We're all like Hannah in the sense that we're barren without him. And we're looking for love in all the wrong places. And we're seeking significance the way other people would give it to us. And we're miserable. And we know it's phony. But we can't find a way out. The way out is the path that Hannah took. Saying, I wanted significance for me. Now I want it for you. Therefore, the source of my significance is Jesus Christ. And it's to him that I will look from now on. It's to him it is he who can change me and give me what I deep, deep down need. And fortunately, we have a marvelous testimony that that will not be rejected. That we will not be mocked at like Penina did when she was vulnerable, when Hannah was vulnerable. And that we will not be given an ineffective love for, for Arcana's love really didn't change the game at all. It was nice. 
But it didn't change the game. What changed the game was finding her significance in Christ, in God. And that transformed everything. Now, it's also good that she got a son, but it's especially good that she kept her word. And so as we come to the table, be reminded that there's only one solution to our needs. And it's not from the culture, and it's not from the love of another person. If we are to ever have any significance at all, it is insofar as we receive it from him, given to us. Not only placed to our account in terms of of justification, but also placed to our account in terms of sanctification. The role that we play in our family, in the church, in our culture, is derived from his giftedness to us. And his placing us in a position for such a time as this. See, Esther another one of Hannah's sisters. So rejoice at the table, for he has placed his significance to your account. The Lord Jesus Christ poured out his soul like Hannah did so that we could be heard. This is a beautiful beginning to the life of David. And it's really where it ends as well. For as David began to learn this same truth again and again throughout his life, he prospered. When he forgot it, when he thought his significance might come from attachment to a beautiful woman like Bathsheba, when he thought his significance might come by simply being king and ruling over people, he stumbled. But when he said, my significance is to be used only for you, Lord, he sang. And we have the benefit of his singing, and we'll turn to it now in these weeks to come. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, as we come to your table now, we're thankful for the first David who came as a result of your hand and blessing through Samuel, through Hannah, down through the ages from Abraham and all the way back to Adam. You have been accomplishing your purposes in barren places. Help us to be kind to the outcast, patient with the weak, generous with those who have so little. And help us to flip the significances of our lives, those things which tend to be idols from which we hope to derive our meaning. Help us to place those things in your care for you to do what you want with them. And we'll thank you for we have no other hope than Jesus Christ He and he alone is our significance. And we stand alone in him. Through Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.